0: Hey, James. Hey, Tim. For the podcast today, we watched a movie where people race cars, steal valuables, shoot guns, and try to form a bond of family in the midst of world-ending situations.
1: Uh, I think you just described the plot of Fast Five from the Fast and the Furious
0: franchise. Uh, oops. Uh, I meant to describe the 1951 movie called Five, but I guess if Disney can remake all of its movies, so can Vin Diesel.
1: Tim... I think you're being super critical.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical ways pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeier, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear counterproliferation for a living. I'm joined today in the podcast studio over Zoom by my co-host James Sheehan, a recovering transatlantic and terrorism policy practitioner turned, wait for it, tabletop gaming professional. Love this! Uh, this is exactly what we needed on the podcast.
1: I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's, it's key to it's key to put policy practitioner uh, in my former former title. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it sounds a little. Sounds a little weird, but thanks for including that. Yeah. Uh yeah, happy to be back. Second episode as co-host and I'm excited to discuss this wonderful film from 1951.
0: Let's take a trip back in time and discuss one of the very first movies, if not the first movie ever, to portray a man made man caused nuclear war devastated earth essentially one of the very first kind of post-apocalyptic caused by nukes caused by weapons type world basically what what you know happens in this movie is a nuclear war uh some kind of new atomic bomb uh, we'll get into the details is deployed everyone is killed that we think except five people so it's five individuals very distinct uh, you know character types and these people. Are trying to survive and trying to form new bonds, but also maybe making society a little bit different. But nuclear war in this kind of scenario kind of is a backdrop to telling a story uh, that has other themes like race and gender. Uh, and it's all very minimalist, real low budget. Five characters, well, point two five if you count the the baby. But yeah, it's a. Have you ever seen? Did you see this movie or hear about it before? Before I politely asked you to include it
1: on your movie list. No, I went in totally cold. Uh, this is the first I heard of it was the first time you, you you know, messaged me about it a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, I agree with you. Very Spartan film, almost, you know, uh, it, it feels like they they picked the right choice shooting it in the, california desert Mm because it it, it could kind of look like a you know a post-apocalyptic landscape it would have would have been an interesting film if they tried to set it somewhere else maybe a little more lush and green um but i think the uh the the setting that they chose to film it in really uh really uh location they chose to film it in really really worked out for them but uh no this is the first i've heard of it and and honestly uh is the first i've heard of this director too so um, I'll definitely try and check out some more things that he's he's done.
0: Yeah, Arch Obler, Obler uh, can't really know how to pronounce it, but he's a, a guy famous for radio plays. I mean, we're that far back in history in 1951 when this movie came out. It's a black and white movie and also famous for doing a lot of anti-fascist plays that were very popular during World War II. Uh, he lived um, out in California in a house, a really fascinating, interesting looking one made by Frank Lloyd Wright. And that is, as you mentioned, the, like, location for where they filmed this movie. So, yeah, he was able to do this movie for only $75,000, because even with inflation, that's pretty low. And the film, I think, was also mostly done production-wise by some USC, University of Southern California film students. Not bad when you can do it. I'm not sure if, if yeah. they were, like, unpaid interns, but they, they got it done for seventy five k. Hey,
1: that's that's a bargain, right?
0: Yeah, and largely unknown actors uh, in this one. I mean, I think some people went on to do a couple Extra stuff, like uh, the one of the main characters, uh, a character named Michael, was played by William Phelps, played also in the David Lynch Dune movie. He was the narrator, uh, oh, kind of later okay. in his career. A woman named Susan douglas the the female lead of the film there was a i think the only person i really knew in this is an actor named james anderson who plays a character named eric who was also the main villain in to kill a mockingbird the very famous uh movie version of it and that's one of the main uh, main main characters antagonists in that movie
1: i think every high school student in the united states probably has watched that film adaptation of that film so he was definitely familiar to me if only from having seen him probably in english class in like 11th grade
0: <laughs> yep 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 and uh, this all rounds out with charles lampkin playing a character named charles and earl lee uh plays a character who's not in the movie for a ton uh named oliver p barnstaple uh Rotten tomato gives this 73 percent fresh uh critics definitely consider it uh decently enough uh in terms of being able to get that kind of rating why are we covering this I just find it really important to talk about the first time this was ever portrayed. So my questions that we'll be covering today is how is the nuclear war and the aftermath portrayed in this movie, one of the first drafts of this kind of plot, different in terms of comparing itself to other attempts more recently at filming these kind of post-apocalyptic movies? And then secondly, does the nuclear war setting kind of add anything to the racism, sexism, rebuilding of civilization story? than other attempts. that I think you have a couple examples of that we can kind of get into near the end.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: All right, let's dive into the movie. As normal, spoiler warning, if you've not seen this movie from 1951 and you're really itching to go see it, uh, what did we find it on? I think we found it on Amazon
1: Prime, but it's also available in a couple other places. Yeah, well, I found it on Prime Video. I think it was $5 or something for you an know, HD re- reissue of it. So pretty affordable for a rental there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've not been able to find it on Blu-ray or anything else. I'm sorry you can't, I couldn't get it and add it to your collection, but it's not one of those movies that's in print. That's okay. I think we'll be able to paint a picture in people's minds of the movie, and, and you'll get a good sense of it. Uh, and there's a couple scenes here and there on YouTube. So the movie starts in a black and white setting, uh, and it opens on stock footage immediately of nuclear detonations, mushroom clouds. Uh, I guess it's just a signal some kind of nuclear war is underway. Because it's also accompanied by some an ominous symphony music. Of course, as I'm off to do, I kind of think, oh, okay, well, what, what test footage is this from? Because if you're going to, usually you can you can tell. And then this one is a very famous one that gets used in a lot of movies because it is incredibly unique in terms of its imagery. This is a nuclear weapon test, codenamed Baker because it was the second of a series of shots, so like um, Abel, and then Baker, and then Charlie. But Baker's shot was part of a series called Crossroads, conducted in mid-1946, so just a year after the first detonation of an atomic bomb, as going to be portrayed in the movie Oppenheimer, which I know you and I have some plans to go see and talk about with some great guests. Woo. In 1946, they went to Bikini Atoll in the Pacific, near the Marshall Islands, and they conducted these tests. and And people who've heard the podcast before, uh, yep, that is Bikini Atoll is where the swimsuit style gets its name. Loved if you're interested in getting into that, James. Uh, it's fascinating—not into a bikini, but into the the story about it. Uh, Anything for the pod. Anything <laughs> for the pod. I mean, like, fortunately, it's a it's a listener-only situation, so it, it'll just be from my eyes, I guess. But that's right. This is a place where a lot of these atmospheric ocean testing took place. So the purpose of this particular test was to see what was the effect of nuclear weapons on naval warships and you can see the stock footage online you can also see in the movie some of the warships right around the base of the mushroom cloud you can actually see if you really slow it down you can see a couple of the warships flying in the air baker was detonated on july 25th 1946 it was 90 feet underwater they nicknamed it on the ground helen of bikini and it was a 23 kiloton plutonium implosion design so just about the size of the bomb that was dropped on, on nagasaki they tested war- Warship damage, they had rats and pigs set up uh, nearby as test subjects to see what kind of damage and radiation effects could be. You know, from a military perspective, you learned a lot, but it was also a huge ecological disaster. Lots of damage, huge numbers of uh, native populations in the Marshall Islands and the Bikini Atoll were permanently displaced. The cleanup and decontamination plan, as much as there actually was one, was canceled pretty much soon after because they figured this is not very safe. This is worse than we thought. It's not worth it to try to clean it up. Just don't let anyone come here. It got to the point where Glenn T. Seaborg, one of the longest serving members of the Atomic Energy Commission, which eventually became the Department of Energy, called the Baker Shot the world's first nuclear disaster. Quite a thing to open a film like this. So it's not only is it a striking image uh, because it includes water, being blasted up into the air uh, lo- looks a lot different than, because it's not actually a fireball that you see, and there's no flash that you see. So you can actually right. see quite a lot of it, but it is... a uh, a very interesting piece of nuclear history there as well in terms of their choices.
1: I have a question, actually, and you might not know the answer, so I'm sorry for asking you to do it live on the air. You know, it's just interesting. This film is made in 1951, probably filmed a year earlier. This this, uh, this uh, footage of the acres from 1946. It's like, was this stuff, was this footage, like, made public right away? Was was there, like, a declassification process that was, like, very quick? Because it seems like the way things move these days, this Seems like a very short time span for this footage to be available to the, you know, for, for people to use for popular cinema.
0: Well, they probably made it so they could show off how great the arsenal was to Good people like, let's say, the Soviet Union. Uh, check this out. We got these uh, new weapons. Um, you're not going to learn know how they work. We're just going to see that they're pretty big. Uh, look we all, all the things we can do in you know, naval warfare. It's a bit of a deterrence because at this point in 1946, the Russians haven't developed their weapon yet. I think that was in 1949. Right. So this was in a period where it was the United States were the only people that had a nuclear arsenal and it was a bit of showing off I think also as well. There were propaganda videos made if you go, literally, it's I'm not kidding, you can go on YouTube and, and search for a Bikini Atoll or a Crossroads series test and you can actually watch not just the clips, you can watch movies with full-on music and um, you know, story vignettes. You can see a lot of uh, shirtless sailors building things on uh, Bikini Atoll, putting everything together And because it was meant to show a story of, like, the bomb is, sure, scary, but we've got it. We've got it under control. Look how much stronger right. we're getting for both an internal domestic U.S. audience and an external one.
2: In the middle of the vast Pacific Ocean lies the tiny coral atoll of Bikini. It is here that Joint Army-Navy Task Force 1 will conduct the tests with the atom bomb. Not since the discovery of gunpowder has the world wondered over the ability of man to create such an agent of destruction. Anchored in the sheltered waters of the Bikini Lagoon below is an array of almost every type of naval vessel used in the past war. Here is the venerable old carrier Saratoga, the battleship Pennsylvania, flagship of World War I. Five, four,
0: three, two, one, fire. It's not meant to be always secretive. Sometimes you want people to know where these things are and what they can do.
1: Fair enough. That's a great answer.
0: Thanks. Well, no worries. Well, what, what else do we see next in the in the movie after the stock footage is over? Because there was a couple other um, detonations and things, but this kind of really was the most significant uh, use of this. What other things yeah. do we
1: see? Because then they go into their version of CGI. Well, we go to we go to our our, our title card here, of course, um, and we see the major, major world landmarks and cities like Big Ben, Red Square, the Taj Mahal, the Eiffel Tower, Times Square, the Golden Gate Bridge. Of course. All sort of being, um, like you said, in, in the CGI of the times. I'm sure it was some interesting practical effects that uh, I, I, I don't quite know how they did it. But basically, they, they showed the world, they showed the world being, being kind of entering this nuclear winter, post-apocalyptic. Yeah. it's Essentially, it's like, it's
0: like smoke in front of all of these images. Yeah. Meant to be yeah. like radioactive dust or cloud or fog or right. something
1: and that is that is the big term they use throughout the, the whole movie is they're always talking about radioactive dust as like the the lingering thing, so they it it is kind of appropriate that they use that as the the imagery this this kind of kind of dust sweeping over over national and and global monument. you get the picture they, they yeah. they're telling you what's happening because there is no um there is no exposition in this movie which will. I think get into is, is you are society is done and then this movie kicks off and, and mm-hmm. we'll, 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 we'll get into that I think in a couple of minutes but
0: the one thing I just want to add is you also hear slight screams like crowd noise screams over the symphony and the imagery of the smoke going over the various population sites but you don't see people. You see no one, you just see no. it's 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 like you're watching your your grade aunt's slideshow presentation of their vacation when they don't have any pictures of them on them. It's just like just just images of these monuments and things and then the noise
1: uh in the background. That's right. I mean, this is a 75k movie. Can't afford extras. Just you know, <laughs> <You're> right? <laughs> just just have some people scream and show the monuments and you're good to go. You've you've uh you've got your point across. <laughs> um so you you have this 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 opening and then they they put some text on the screen. Um, and they, they put this text on it says the, the deadly wind path is over it and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Now, Tim, both of you and I <laughs> were immediately like, that's gotta be from that's gotta be from the Bible. And uh it is it is loosely it is very similar to Psalm one oh three, sixteen, for the wind path is over it and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. So they they add deadly in there, I think, for a little bit of dramatic mm-hmm. effect, but again you know a nice you know, I that that honestly hooked me you know this 1951 sort of a little bit you know very obvious bible quote about the end of days or something I was like yeah all right this is
0: this is this is one of three like direct quotes of the bible and I think biblical spiritual elements for a 1951 movie is not not a surprise I think you might even be able to get away with talking about these kinds of more controversial subjects if you place it within that story right.
1: No, that's a good point. Yeah, you're definitely framing things for your audience. I think in a in an in a, in a appropriate way for the time. Um, and then they, they they actually, I think that the it's there's more text that says a story about the day after tomorrow. And I I couldn't I couldn't find this in my my research this week. But I I, I don't know if you were able to dig it up either. But is this the first piece of culture? I guess like cinema book books. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the is that is this the origin of that phrase, the day after tomorrow? I mean, I know that's like. People can use that to describe the day, after, like two days from now or whatever, but I'm like in this context, because that becomes such a, you associate that with like post-apocalyptic elliptic literature and, and film and stuff like that in the future. So I'm just wondering if this is like the genesis of that being used in this context, but I don't know.
0: The the book of Genesis is quoted um, at some point, but I don't know about, about I, don't, I don't know the, if this is the first, but it's definitely... It's pretty early pretty early movie, 1951. There aren't that many yeah. decades of film before that. I'm going to look that up as well, but I think it definitely is one of the first that portrays and connect, connects that to the nuclear space, this new age that people are, right. are living in. The world that we do see is, uh, when we go back to the movie, a woman who is wandering around. She's a wandering first along a road, then into a forest, and then to an, a town that seems abandoned. She... Seems to be in a daze. She's walking real slow, doesn't seem to fully know where she is. She stops at a car, like a Studebaker kind of car, and opens it up, and there's just like a skeleton, a dead body. Uh, but a skeleton, like it looks, I know it looks great. It looks a little bit like a Halloween store skeleton, but it looks pretty good. And there's just a body there, and she's completely, she's seen a couple of these. She doesn't. This does not, this does not seem to phase her. Just a sad, okay, well, time to go to the next place. And she's walking through this town. It seems abandoned. little ramshackled. Not a lot of buildings like destroyed. But maybe that's, again, a budget thing. She's just looking for people. She finds more skeletons. She's trying to find someone. She's yelling out, like, where is everybody? She hears a bell. Uh, thinking maybe that there's someone ringing a bell. Alerting people where they are. But it's just the wind. And we realize her name is Roseanne Rogers. She's looking for another person. But... There's no one there. And she seems pretty distraught. She seems to, like, remember something and remembers, like, where she is and, like, leaves to go off to some other location. But we do see really the only major exposition in here, and it's so fast. It is a, a newspaper clipping from the Mountain News. It's, like, on the outside of a, I don't know, a library. And it's it reads, World Annihilation Feared by Scientist. Savant warns against new bomb use. And then the text of the article that we can see is professor Juan, more or less today said that if the new bomb is used annihilation of any life on earth is within the range of technical possibilities it could be done he said through radioactive poisoning of the atmosphere so there we go there's our exposition some kind of new bomb in this world and when i see these things i think of a couple stuff i think is the movie making up Some kind of like new bomb, like let's say a neutron bomb, a bomb that releases a ton of neutron radiation that can destroy living things and people and, you know, kill them without destroying as much buildings and infrastructure. Or is it a bomb that is salted, like the ones that are referenced in Dr. Strangelove, uh, which, you know, did exist. You you could put extra types of uh, radioactive material in them to make the bombs super duper radioactive a lot more fallout you could detonate your weapons closer to the ground and that would cause a lot more fallout to kind of spread around the world is it one of those or is it just a larger weapon like let's say a hydrogen bomb that was created the much larger megaton range bombs maybe it's something along those lines but either way seems like the savant was correct and uh something happened it doesn't seem though to be a warning if you test this weapon The world will end it seems to be like used meaning like a world conflict that's how i interpreted it did you interpret it that way that it was like a war that happened or was it like like the core you know the movie we covered recently one weapon was tested and oops uh we it happened like they did and they talked about and they took bets on during the manhattan project if they test this weapon we'll light the atmosphere on fire
1: yeah, so uh, and and you're you're right in saying that this like mountain news clip is really quick. I think I may have sneezed and missed this part. Um, that's how that's how fast it was um, in the movie. But
0: you didn't you didn't pause it, screenshot it, and and,
1: and pour over it for three days like I did. <laughs> no, I did that with the Bible quotes, but, <laughs> but not this one. You know, maybe we could talk about this a little more when we're discussing like the different typologies of disaster films and like what 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 you know how we've kind of evolved and. What causes what? What's the cause of the you know the the disaster or the apocalypse and all these things? But I was yeah I was pretty confused at this point because I I guess I'm still a little unsure what the well I guess they, they well, we won't spoil it but it, it wasn't clear to me at this point what the cause of I mean I, I, mean, I know it was radioactive it's it's something to do with dust uh, it's more like this poisoning um, aftermath of um, you know of, of of an atomic weapon but it's not Evidently clear to me what was going on. I guess I I probably assumed war. And I
0: I do remember later some of the characters referred to don't go in the cities. That's where most of the bombs were
1: dropped. So it, right. that sounds like that's, a larger yeah. exchange. But we don't know at this point at right. least. At this point, we don't know. Yeah, and, and that's that's why I kind of guess like later on. Yeah, I said I didn't want to spoil our, our conversation, but I mean, whatever you're listening to this, it's it's a spoiled <laughs> spoiled movie. Um, but later on, I was like, yeah, it's definitely war because of that line. And I think there's another another line um, that that kind of suggests that there was more of a conflict involved. It wasn't like an accident or anything like that. But yeah, at this point you're kind of in the dark. I don't know. You just kind of fall this lady through the desert. Mm. You know, she's pretty out of it. No other people find this newspaper. Maybe you missed this part with the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> and then, maybe, uh, maybe the
0: radioactive dust made you sneeze.
1: Yeah. Something yeah, like that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're with you're with Rosanna a little bit more. And then she just has a recollection that she knows this area. Mm-hmm. Um, and she climbs to the top of a um, isolated, sort of an isolated ridge. And there's a kind of a, a really rustic, would be a polite way to describe it, um, a home up there. She remembers that this is her aunt's property. Um, and we then are introduced to our second of the five, Michael. Someone is using this home as a base camp. Someone is already there. It is Michael. He pops in. There's kind of an awkward first exchange because she's like, hey, this is my this is my aunt's house. Like, I remember it from when I was a child. I guess I wandered here out of yeah. muscle memory, some kind of homing, <laughs> like homing pigeon. Instinct. this is after
0: she faints, falls asleep and then comes back up and starts to talk a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's just kind of like a weird exchange. And he I think he says, well, I'll, I'll go then. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess this is your place. I guess this is your place. It's uh, very awkward. Like, it kind of reminded me like, you know. It, oftentimes in like post-apocalyptic stuff we see you know you know like in mad max it's like well who cares i'm just like taking this you know it's like yeah it's mine i have the strength through the weapons or the power to take it it's mine but he was like there's there's a lot of problems with michael but in, in this yep. in, in this opening scene he was like well you know okay i guess i'll leave like you
0: know? yeah, yeah and Mike, michael michael <laughs> Michael rogan uh he is he's described uh, and kind of portrayed as a bit of like a seems like a bit of a survivalist but also a poet uh he he's been going around hunting and gathering and scavenging things to survive he seems he says his job before the war was a barker at the top of the empire state building which i thought this scene was really nice it uh it shows like can, can you believe what my job was i stood at the top of a building and i yelled out like where all the other cities boroughs were so it's like as weird like look at me on the top of the world ma uh and then it's like i guess none of that matters anymore
2: <laughs> we are now situated on a point one hundred two stories in the air. On the highest, loftiest, man made edifice in all the world. Of the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. Now that's where I was when it all began.
0: So yeah, I mean he's he, he was talking about his life and and all of those things and how he never really thought he'd find someone else that's still alive. Um we kinda learn a little bit about like how each person that we'll meet survived the war uh, or survived whatever radiation killed everybody else. Um I'll wait a little while, I think, until we get like all of our characters. Then we can kind of run through all yeah. the ways that people survived. It seems like essentially the point is he was in New York City. Now he's somewhere else. I don't know where where would you where would you say this movie takes place in terms of the the, the story itself?
1: Um I think they're fifty miles outside of Los Angeles. Okay. So you um, think what you think West Coast? Oh absolutely hundred percent So when they're well when they do Go into town at one point, um, and there's a big there's a big sign that says California Hotel. I think that this is definitely, and I think this is supposed to be LA, uh, or and this is supposed, to, and they're they're doing this kind of outside of Los Angeles.
0: So I thought that, but there's also a sign nearby, and I think the town that they go to at the end of the movie, which we'll get to, is called Oak Ridge, which is a nuclear interesting lab yeah. site where they involved <laughs> in the Manhattan Project, and that's in Tennessee. So I think you're okay. right. I, I think it is California. I think they're just sharing. And playing around with the names and stuff, but I guess the point of this is that Michael made it from New York City across the United States to this location, and eventually yes. found found a spot that he liked, which was this. You know, if you had to get to pick a place, probably a home built by Frank Lloyd Wright would be not a bad, terrible place to to check out.
1: It's it's uh, we can save this for you know when we sort of address some of our issues with the movie. I guess, but I'll just I'll just say at this point, a lot of far distances covered by various characters to arrive at this this location in this movie that right. um is sort of uh you know, if you've if you've watched more recent post apocalyptic movies it's like you know the the time they spend you know if you're talking about something like the last of us the time they spend to go like i don't know a mile yes yeah. is, like is is so, is so is so long it's like all these things happen to them and it's it's crazy and this is just like yeah you know i'm sure he has stories and you know that's that sounds like a, a good movie like how did he get from new york to, to well, he, he, like, he does
0: say it, he went he went from town to town and cities to city and he saw people dead after choking and dying due to radiation dust
2: began to run it was a nightmare whole united states wherever there have been people that infernal radioactive dust it choked and it killed and it but there comes an end to running
0: yeesh well it's quite a situation we have here but we have two people and at first michael seems pretty harmless like he, as you mentioned he's, he's like happy to find someone else he even offers to leave uh but roseanne doesn't really want that except until the point where he decides one evening after he had a little bit of a bonding moment with roseanne He says, look, we're the only two people left. Let's get together. And he essentially tries to sexually assault her. She yells out that she has a husband. Her husband's name is Steven. He might still be alive, and she's pregnant with that person's baby. And that seems to knock some sense into Michael. He apologizes later for what he did. You know, a moment of of weakness or whatever, but it's not a great introduction to to Michael. A very religious undertone film. Michael, uh, you know, the archangel... He's the only character with that kind of religious name, by biblical name, that I can think of. Um, but nevertheless, quite a quite an introduction. But I don't think it was meant to be like if, if you were watching this movie in nineteen fifty one, I don't think you're supposed to attach much to that. He apologize, he's fine. But watching it today, that was definitely one of the difficult scenes.
1: Yeah, that was it was pretty jarring, honestly. It was, it was very um,
0: r- very random.
1: Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it kind of snaps you and you're like oh snaps you back, and you're like, Yeah, this movie is from nineteen fifty one. You know, it's it's interesting to see like characters who have like severe character flaws, and this is this is like in the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. and you're you know I don't know, but like I'm pretty sure at this point that he he has a pretty big role to play in this. Like he's and it, the movie's called Five. Um, so there's, there's gotta we're up to, up to be two so people. far, yeah. We're up to two, and they're just like um dropping this in there, pretty pretty blatantly like right what i mean this is like what 15 minutes in so yeah, yeah. uh it it's, it's 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 a tough scene and i think that obviously this movie is is a product of the you know the era that it was created and made for certain audiences it's not it's not going to resonate in certain ways or it's going to be very offensive to to people from uh, from our time who were watching it but it's interesting I'm, 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 if i can critique it a little bit I'm, I'm really not sure what it's supposed to tell us um that we don't already know like we know this guy has seen some horrible things we know that he is sort of a you know like a, a survivalist uh, mm-hmm. kind of not a wild man he's very very well put together honestly frankly like quite urbane in the sense that he's like from new york and he you know was, was you know was he, he's been in a society he's not like a a you know a feral he's not feral person. Yeah, he's not he's not Ron Swanson uh right. or he's, he's not a, a backwoods folk. Which makes it all the all the more creepy I think is that like this guy is actually like, you know, he knows better, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wonder, you know, part of it could be if you really wanted to pull it out. You could say, well this person has been dealing with this situation for however long it takes someone to travel that far and then seeing all the things and now he sees another person. A a beautiful young woman and he's and he's just attaching Meaning to that, like, oh well, I guess it's you and me now, right? And then she's right. like, no, I have a husband, you know. No, I'm not, I'm not, not doing that. I might have a husband, and he's just like, but I don't. Why don't you understand? Clearly, he's coming to it from a different perspective um, than she is, and that's obviously not a perspective that you should ever entertain. But I, he, he definitely does never. He never tries it again. He talks a lot about wanting to be more protective of of, of both of them, but of her in particular. And once he finds out that she's pregnant, you know he's he refuses to do what she asks, which is to take um them into the city to look for her husband uh because he's like look we're we're living in a dead world. it's not safe. that's where the bombs dropped um He says at one point that he's glad that this honky tonk world is over, so he seems to be distaste uh has a huge distaste of the previous world and its order and and all of those things and wants to create something new. Um, but not a great start to that world. Um, if that's, you know, one of your things that you do, uh, to the other, the other person that's still alive.
1: Yeah. And I think this sets him up as that. I mean, th- that's exactly his perspective and his, what he's representing in the movie is that the old world is gone. There's no looking back. We have to maybe not even rebuild, but just survive mm-hmm. um, as best we can without going back to what's in there. And I mean, he has the credibility and that's in the sense of his experience. He's, you know, he's, he's traveled the country perhaps from coast to coast to, and he's seen a lot of really terrible things. And, you know, you are inclined to believe him from that side of things. Cause he's, he's been to these places. He's seen these towns. He's seen people die of the, the, the you know, the, the, the radioactive dust. So um, you, you, you do believe him when he's like, we can't go into the city. Um, it seems right. very like forbidden, very, okay. Don't go there that's our that's our intro to, to michael i guess right
0: yep well let's bring the number up to four
1: because uh, we meet two more survivors
0: they uh, just see smoke coming from the house and they drive a car over and they honk the horn and and they're like oh hey uh good to see you
2: i never expected to see anyone well, i
0: neither did
1: i
2: oh a young lady i am oliver b barnstaple i am assistant cashier at the santa barbara bank how do you do how do you do when we saw that smoke in the sky from your
0: chimney another hour and it would have been too dark so we meet two other people we meet an older gentleman named oliver p barnstaple uh, who was before the war a bank clerk he is interesting because he seems to represent people who are firmly in denial of what just happened he talks about how they're they're just on vacation they're gonna get back to work soon oh, what kind of things do you do for a living? I'm in the banking industry. I'm very important. I have to get back to work now. And he seems to be in this state of uh, not really believing uh, what happened and hasn't really processed it. And he's fortunately joined by a work colleague named Charles, uh, who's this nice guy, very important Uh, to point this out. He's an African-American person and he worked. You mentioned at one point, you know, he's in the business life. He wants a sense of security in his life. He wants, he wanted to be a school teacher, but this bank job provided him a, a decent living, um, and they both seem like they survived uh, together. they you are know, kind of like treating each other because um, they are the only two people that are alive as the last two people
1: alive. Charles is, um, I think, a really interesting character and maybe my favorite character. And oh yeah, the the, mo- I, I, the most I think like nuanced and, and interesting character in the movie. And you know he. He has that line where he wanted to be a school teacher, but he the stability, what, what was he making? He was making thirty-eight dollars a week or something, something, like that as a bank teller. And again, just very like 1951, living on 38 bucks a week, you know, just uh You could buy you could buy two houses with that. Yeah, that's right. Um uh, and uh but you learn a lot about him in very little amount of time. I think they do a good job of mm-hmm. telling you who he is what he wanted to do in, in the old world, what he ended up doing. You know, I guess that tells you a lot of things. That tell you tells you he's not really a risk taker, right? He is kind of a go with the flow character. And I think that's played out throughout the rest of the movie is that he is not really going to be the leader. He's not going to try and push too many buttons. He's just going to play it safe in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you agree, but that's that, to me, yeah. that's what that was kind of speaking to.
0: No, I think that makes perfect sense. And um, we'll talk a little about kind of why they might have survived. Uh, because one one thing is that Barnstaple, the older gentleman, is not doing well. He seems to be sick. And at one point, we find out um, Roseanne sees that there are sores on his skin. He says, oh, I might have bruised myself. I wonder what I hit.
2: When I fall down. I don't remember. Oh, I must have bruised myself seem to be bleeding under my skin. Many places. I think it's radiation poisoning. How do you know that? I don't know, I'm guessing. But after Hiroshima, the magazines ran pictures, it looks the same. But you're not sure.
0: No, I'm not sure. He doesn't know what to do about it. He's like someone who's watched a nuclear war movie and saw something and said, yeah, that seems like what they portrayed, but... I don't know what to do about it. Uh it's not great, but Barnstable, he's sick. They try to take care of him and then he seems like he gets a little bit better and he says I want to go to the beach cuz he always wanted to see the ocean and go to the beach and live there. So they get him there. He seems to be doing pretty well. He's like a little happy, you know, person on on the beach, but uh while they're there, we get our fifth. So at one point we are at a for at least a little while five individuals. Who is our
1: fifth character? They find a man named eric who they pull out of the ocean he kind of washes ashore he comes around there do they have a camp Did they have a fire on the beach i can't remember exactly but, they kind of warm him up. i think they put a blanket on him or something like that they're kind of like you know it seems like he's been through a traumatic event he has a i, I would place this as one of the <laughs> most hard to place and also worst accents i've ever heard in a movie
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's difficult <laughs> but it. but i will say this i was hooked a little bit maybe because of how terrible know, it was but he was very he chewed the scenery like he was very gripping as a character I, I had to watch when he would speak but it was I was like is that German? is that Swiss? it's not British what are you? Yeah.
2: I have listened to the stories of your individual miracles now I'll tell you of my I was on the mountain when it happened the mountain Everest. Surely you heard
1: of our exploration. No matter. I alone. So this is this is one of my favorite sort of yadda yadas yeah. in, in, yep. in the movie. Is that he says, "Well, I survived because I was on the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> I, I was climbing. The, I was climbing the mountain. The mountain. <laughs> the mountain." Yeah, Everest. Uh, that one heard of it. Um, <laughs> I was at the top of Mount Everest when all of this went down. Climbed down to my base camp, and everyone was dead. So we were led to believe that all whatever happened was happening, not at the peak of Everest, but you know, five thousand <laughs> feet below that. Sure, you're, you're still in the you're still in the danger zone. Um, <laughs> Ironically, being
0: what does that call? They call it like the, de- the 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 zone of death up there, where it gets a certain point where it's like really the air yeah, is super thin. Right. Apparently that right. was. Turns out no, that was. Perfectly the safest place to be in
1: the world. Safest place on earth. He tells us that he walked from Mount Everest to what I guess is China, to like to to coastal China. He takes a boat from East Asia to Hawaii, gets to Hawaii, where he manages to find a plane that works and says, I guess I'll give America a try. (laughs) (laughs) And and flies the plane to what we assume is is the West Coast, to, to LA or or some made-up city the west coast of the united states so um he literally literally like was able in this in this world where no one else is alive and i you know correct me if i'm wrong but i believe in that entire journey he doesn't say that he saw anyone i don't know if he does he say that i think he definitely
0: believes that people are dead but he doesn't get it like why is he doesn't understand why he's the only person alive but it it definitely seems to be quite a journey Overall,
1: and I think this is important. We'll talk about it near the end, but like that's that that had to have been a couple of months, right? At least, number one, I don't know how long it takes to maybe if people are listening and they want to tweet at us, how long does it take to (laughs) sail from, or maybe he had a, I guess maybe he had a a motorboat or like something with that ran on. I mean, who knows? He he might have like stole a a cruise liner. Yeah, possibly. Um, (laughs) but just this this journey just is so, so crazy. I was like scratching my head of like, Okay, so you walk from Everest to California. Cool, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wild. Well, and then
0: landed on the the one beach where there are people left. Right, we're not five for long. We're back down to four because Barnstable just dies. He dies on the beach. Um, they they don't know why. Uh, he seemed fine, but he has now perished. Quite a we only were only five for a little bit for maybe five minutes. Uh, basically, as long as the the story. I'm not even sure Barnstable met Eric. We get back to our home base of operations, that that house uh, over in the mountains. Eric comes with them, and they try to get something going. This is kind of where the the movie starts to become a little bit more about um, rebuilding. And through stories exchanged and things, we learn a little bit, you know, as crazy as Eric's survival story is, we learn a little bit about other people. So as we alluded to earlier, Roseanne says that she was getting an x-ray so she was in a room where she was getting an x-ray she heard a loud noise didn't know what was going on woke up everyone was dead and then she started to kind of wander around and then made her way over to the the town that she's in so they if they assume oh she must have been in a place where lead walls or something protected her from the radiation the worst effects of it eric as we mentioned he was at the top of the empire state building and was doing his little barking duties. I mean, he he saw a flash and tried to run inside, and he says he was pushed by the explosion into the elevator shaft and woke up and climbed his way out from that way, Uh, which, you know, doesn't seem like the most protective place, but that's what his story is. Charles and Barnstaple were inside, accidentally locked into a bank vault. So much like our friend from that Twilight Zone episode, you know, Time Enough at Last, uh, Burgess Meredith, they were locked in a bank vault and were able to, to get out at some point. That's how our characters, you know, claim they survive. I don't know which of those stories is the craziest, probably Eric's. Eric's, yeah. Yeah, Eric. Eric's up, so? yeah, probably. <laughs> so, that's that's what happened. But now, moving forward, some of our characters try to build a home together, forge this family. So, Charles and Michael, they get a farm going. They're able to grow some corn, some staple crops. So, it looks like it's not just uh, you know, the soil seems to be able to produce um Eric tries to, it's kind of a bit of a love triangle now, uh, Eric and Michael are both trying to form some sort of a, a romantic relationship with Roseanne, Eric opens up about kind of, oh, what he's trying to like, what a new home he wants to go to, he doesn't seem if he wants to stay here, he's like, after all of this, I get here, and this is, well, what did I end up finding here? Like, oh yeah, you're all here in survival, but I don't want to be a farmer, I climb mountains, uh, I don't want to live here. He seems to want more of a life, like the kind of person who could climb Mount
1: Everest. I flew a plane from Hawaii to here <laughs> for this.
0: <laughs> that long, terrible
2: trip to reach here. Endless days at sea. Alone. Always alone. Now I found my civilization.
0: But there is some nice elements, right? People seem to, you know, even if maybe Eric's not enjoying all of this, the, there are some nice moments of of levity and positivity in in these people's lives
1: yeah they start dancing once they get a gas generator going um and they have that really i think one of my favorite moments in the movie uh is just they're reminiscing about how things were before before the war before the the end of end of civilization um including their favorite foods, sounds smells places to go um i think it's charles who like very Beautifully describes a cheeseburger, I mm-hmm. think. and it just—it just, it just sounds like so good. <laughs> like it just sounded like very simple, but yeah, very I, pulled,
0: like... I pulled my phone out. And it's like, do I still have the Uber Eats app? Mm, no, yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't. It's... Yeah, it's one in the morning, Tim. You can't do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know. Thankfully, they didn't do any of that like um subconscious uh planting of, of ideas that they used to do in the movies. Like, boy, I could go for a popcorn and a Coca Cola right now <laughs> <laughs> and a war bond. <laughs> yeah, it was... no, but it was—it was a very nice, a very nice scene probably the only truly nice scene in the movie. Um where they're all kind of well there's only four, so it's not the, the the five, but the four of them are actually like being civil and laughing and and having a good time.
0: Immediately though that ends because our yes. our friend Eric <laughs> uh turns out sucks. Not only is he the kind of person who um tells that kind of story of his trip over here, he starts spouting out things like I think, you know, I got a theory We're all immune. We're immune to radiation. We're the best of us. Like, we're the best of the people that are left. We're genetically superior. People like those who survived the big, you know, the dark plagues, the the Black Death. We are people that survived. There are others like us out there. We need to go to the big cities. That's likely where they are.
2: Giving a great deal of thought to why we are alive. I was at the tremendous height in you two behind metal, the bank vault, the x-ray room. Yet, what about you? You had no such protection. Now, what about the old man who died in spite of having the same protection as this one had? The answer to me is obvious. Immunity. Simply because there is something within our bodies. A chemistry which gives a special immunity to that which killed the others.
0: Michael and Charles, they're pushing back on that. They're not convinced. They say that radiation is probably the worst and most concentrated at the cities.
2: Look, that's just a theory. And a theory is just a bunch of words set front to back. A the theory becomes a fact with proof. And that is the very reason we should go into the cities and look for these people who might be alive. We'll never know waiting here. She will never know if her husband is dead or alive.
0: But Eric is, like, dismissive of that. He wants to search the world. He wants to find the treasure left in the cities, like fast cars, fancy suits, canned corn. Like, that's what he talks, you know, about wanting those kinds of items that are left. And once essentially like rule the ashes of the earth rather than build something else out here. Uh, and then pretty quickly also pivots to showing that he's a mega racist. Uh, he talks about how Charles shouldn't be alive. And he's like, you're the only one that doesn't make sense. Why are you, African-American Charles, part of this master genetics that I'm you know, portraying? You should go live somewhere else. He says at one point, it was a mistake that you're alive. And he can't stand living under the same roof. So they start fighting. Pretty much the fight is only stopped once Roseanne goes into labor. Which is a pretty scary moment. I think the movie I read somewhere that was going to be a lot crazier. In terms of what childbirth scene they were going to show. Movies in 1951. You can't really even show childbirth at all. So it's just alluded to. She gives birth to a boy. uh, By Michael. Delivered by Michael. By Michael. Uh, But what is it? She decides ultimately she's not going to name the child until she knows about the fate of Steve and her husband.
1: Yeah, and this all kind of spurs uh, Eric to drive away in the Jeep. He does kind of give a pretty bad apology, I would say.
0: I said I was was sorry. Uh, What else do you want from me? It's done.
1: It won't happen again. I apologize. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry if you were offended. This is very, this is like a crazy scene because it's like, Everyone's having a good time. Eric is weird. He's a weird guy. We know that. But it's all this all of a sudden within like five minutes, it's like, yeah. oh, he's a Nazi. And <laughs> and now we're going into now we're
0: going into labor. Right. Um so, and, and now we're back up. at least we're back up to five now because the baby's born. We're up, so
1: we're back up to five, yeah. And and unfortunately
0: uh, 20% of those uh people are Nazis.
1: It's a high percentage of Nazis. It's more, more than I would want in my yeah. Uh, post-apocalyptic bunker bunker group. Fair. Um, but, hey, I guess that's, you know, beggars can't be choosers? <laughs> I guess. Well, I mean, honestly, they do
0: think that's the terminology that the group uses. Michael says something like, I think we should push him out and get him out of here. He doesn't deserve to live with us, and he's not helping us with our, our chores. He shouldn't live here. She says that Charles is all, you know, he was a threatening Charles. You know, he shouldn't live here. And, and it's Charles who says something like, I don't think we have the power to send him away. Like what, who right. are we to send him away? Uh, you know, Michael, dude, this isn't even your house. Like, wh- what are you pushing? Why do you have that authority? And he says something like, we don't have that many people left. Like, I think we got to make it work. The scene that I thought was really interesting was Eric comes back. He's wearing a fancy suit. He's got things for the baby. He tries to make amends with people. Michael keeps saying like, we're talking about you. And Eric's like, oh, okay. And then he goes through and Michael's like, "I, I Eric, we're, we're here to talk about this. And he's oh, sure, no problem. What? And he's like, so completely dismissive, does not care what Michael has to say. And it's fascinating because like, if you got five people left in this <laughs> world and one of them is a complete jerk, racist, uh, you know, almost attempted to murder someone and they don't want to play ball by the world that you're trying to build this world of collaboration and helping and some sort of utopia uh, where everybody puts in their work and everybody gets to benefit from the labor. What happens when you
1: got somebody who's like, nah, no, but I still want to hang out. They definitely try and make Eric out to be the boogeyman. He is pretty unlikable, I would say, from the beginning. If a bit weird, detached, kind of aloof, strange. Um, it's he is sort of always like this outsider who never really like fits into the group from from the beginning. And I think it's it's. I think the characters in this movie are actually like pretty nuanced. Like I was saying earlier with mm-hmm. Michael, and I, I think there is like there actually are some really good characters in this. At least at least three. But B- Barnstable is in such a short amount of the movie, that it's tough to, tough to really say that he has any development. But right, um, but 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 Charles, Michael, and uh, Roseanne are I think are are pretty pretty well fleshed out and interesting. But they they definitely are like Eric is weird and, and evil and yeah, he's a Nazi and uh, he definitely represents the the world of like
0: the the past is dead but let's make it our own. Let's, uh, let's right. live in the past, you know, in, in in that kind of odd way. Like let's, let's take advantage of it. Let's not try to build anything new Right. In, in a kind of a jerk move drives the Jeep through the cornfield that Charles was able to get going, destroying like half their crops. And he's like, hey, I just don't want to live in this country, like lifestyle. He says it was the shorter way for me to, to get, you know, home. Um, oops, I'm sorry. But he's like, "Why are we doing this?" There's all these canned food in the cities. Also, he probably hates Charles. Michael straight up says, "All right, I gave it a shot." He also says at one point, "Like I'm gonna be working on the I don't know work shed or something." Um, you want to come out and help me with the wood?" And he's like, "Yeah, I will." And it's well, Michael's uh on top of the roof and it's hot and he's like sawing away. You just see Eric like just chilling with like a lemonade far away and it's like you
1: smoke, smoking a cigarette, laying on his back, hanging out.
0: <laughs> out. so probably that's what upset michael the most uh he goes to eric and says leave get out of here eric says sure i will leave i'll go in my own time flashes a pistol and says i will leave on my own time Ugh, it's uh it's difficult and when michael brings that to roseanne and talks about that they they actually embrace a little bit. It seems like maybe she's trying to move on, but what does she say while they're kissing? She says, "Oh, Stephen." And then the orchestra pops in, and it's like, "Oh no!" Looks like she's not ready yet to move on.
1: This is the scene I had. I I I, I paused like two scenes in this movie. I paused the intro to write down the Bible quote, and then. <laughs> <laughs> then I paused and rewinded the scene because it, it's so it just happens so quickly. And she's like, oh, Stephen, you kind of have to remember, oh, he's not Stephen. He's Michael. Yeah, yeah. Wait, what? Steven, Steven's her husband. She doesn't know if he's dead or alive. I had to rewatch. I was like, OK, she calls out Stephen's name while she's kissing and embracing Michael. And that's the that's the big orchestra hit. That's the...
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely one of those things where 1950s style of movies. And I've seen a couple of those now with like On the Beach and a few others where it's so jarring how fast they'll end a scene they never let anything linger like there's this beautiful quote a quote of from genesis that charles is telling the story of and, he, and he's quoting and he said talk about you know a story that his, da, his dad told him and he says it and it's a, a close-up shot with him kind of like below up looking at the sky and it's like beautiful moment it's like talking 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 done next scene and it's like there's no yeah. sense of Nothing ever has a chance to breathe. It's just a different style of, you know, film Film costs money. <laughs> don't, why why say many words when uh, fewer, better?
1: I was wondering if that was it, actually, when you were saying that. Was it because they, I don't were, know. they were literally burning film? Or, yeah, I, I, knows, I don't right? know, but it, it's definitely, it's uh, quick cuts. There's no pause. There's no, let me think about that. It's like, all right, that happened. It's almost, <laughs> it's like a play. It feels very play-like. And I, yeah. I think this movie... She in a lot of ways, feels like a play. And the, and the
0: director made radio plays before all this started. So, and then other yeah. kind of anti-fascist plays. Um, well, Eric takes advantage of this. Maybe he doesn't necessarily know uh, Roseanne's feelings, but he knows that she maybe wants to move on, but she can't until she knows that her husband is actually dead. Um, he's our, Rose, Eric's already talked to Roseanne about wanting to go into the city. He knows she wants to. So he tells her, kind of in the middle of the night, come with me, I'm going to go into the city. I'm gonna go find some supplies, but while I'm there, you're gonna go look for your husband. Oh, I don't even know what your husband looks like. I guess you're gonna have to come with me. Yeah, we're well, definitely gonna come back, but don't tell Michael. And she she falls for this. She writes a note uh, for Michael and says she's gonna come back. She wants to find her husband's fate. Maybe it will help her move on. Uh, Eric has no intention of coming back. He is taking the only woman that he knows is alive uh, and is bringing um, her and her baby with um, him to the city. And that's where I mentioned, like, it says Oak Ridge uh, at one point. But he takes her. He drives. Uh, he mentioned at one point, it'd be nice if you could drive, because then I wouldn't have to drive so much. Uh, he takes a little nap. Um, she seems definitely, like, leery of the situation, but she wants to go see for good. And it's also very clear, like, he's not coming back. Because when he's caught stealing yeah. supplies uh, by Charles, Charles like, yo, what's up? Uh, what are you doing? Um, you hanging out? I guess you can be the only one that's, uh, I guess you're, not, you're the only one I guess I'm not the only one that can't sleep. Wait, what are you doing? And then Eric stabs Charles in the back and kills him uh, and then runs away. Yeah, so now we're down to back
1: down to, to four again. We're back down to four. So they, they get to the city. Uh, Eric, of course, begins looting because he's really into canned vegetables, as we've established <laughs> uh, earlier in the film. Just can't get enough of them. And Roseanne goes to her husband's office um and then to a nearby hospital waiting room and we see another one of these anatomy class skeletons <laughs> um, i think on like a, a sofa or, or a, it's some you, you kind of see the hand and you're you know that's that's enough the skeletal remains and you steven is no longer no longer with us um and, and not only no
0: longer with us but down
1: to the skeleton yeah there is there you're kind of questioning how long ago all this was because um, while cause she the was, level of... while she was walking, I mean, yeah. it can't be more than nine months. A little longer than that, because the baby, but... right? That's true. It can't be more than, than nine months. So there's a pretty rapid level of decomposition of human remains in the movie. That uh... yeah, I mean, I guess before you know, there again, seventy five thousand dollar budget. Um... Sure, it's five, <laughs> but it is just a a Halloween skeleton. <laughs> That's her husband.
0: But she knows now her husband's dead. Uh, she recognizes something about him and she goes back to Eric and says, yeah, I I figured it out. Uh, I know what it is now. I want to leave. And Eric's like, you're never, we're never leaving. You're coming with me.
2: Couldn't we go back now?
0: Back where? You little fool. I got you away. You don't think I'm going to take you back? He's about to like essentially assault her and take her to where he wants to go next. But then she points out after he kind of gets his shirt ripped open a little bit. Look, you've got those same... Sores and and wounds and signs of radiation sickness that we saw on uh, Barnstable. And what does Eric do? But like screams and cries, kind of becomes childlike and just runs away
1: and leaves her and the baby. Pretty pretty anticlimactic, I would say. It's it's a weird scene. Number one, it, it like happens so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, he's like is is you know trying to basically. Like, kidnap her, bring her into his weird fantasy, and then he all of a sudden just, like, starts screaming and runs behind a couple parked cars. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, all right. And because we
0: we already established she can't drive, so she has to walk, and she walks back slowly. Takes a very long time. She doesn't really maybe know where she's going. She's walking through some stuff. And for, I would say, pretty surprising, for 1951, her baby dies. It stops breathing, or and she... Brings it.
2: Our baby's dead.
0: It's unclear if it died because the walk took too much time or if it was radiation. She doesn't mention at any point, like, right. you know, seeing something. But who knows? Infants are a lot differently affected by radiation. They don't have that extra body mass to absorb more things, to let those other symptoms show. Michael has been looking for her, finds her. They bury the sun and return to the house, her, yeah. and Michael's there cultivating the soil. She walks up and says,
2: I want to help
0: you. Camera
1: pans away as there's two of them are left growing corn. Yeah, it's it's real dark. I mean, the, the infant death is, is really a... Did you see that coming? No, honestly, I didn't. I mean, I should have known, I guess, because the entire movie is pretty dark, and it doesn't really pull punches in the sense that bad things are pretty much happening to everyone throughout the movie. There's a lot of death. 3 characters die on screen. Yeah. Um for I mean if you count the baby the leading up to the, the infant death like three characters just die either from poisoning or from murder or from So no I didn't I mean but I with that said I didn't see it coming and I and I think that like I was honestly shocked. I thought it was going to be kind of one of these things where she gets back and Michael's there, or Michael finds her and saves both of them, or there was going mean, to some something that didn't go that far because that's a that's a really I can't even ma- you know <laughs> I don't even know what audiences audiences are doing in 1951 if they're seeing that on a movie screen. It just, I mean I don't know how widely this was released if it was popular or, or seen far and wide, but it was like that's a very disturbing scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard. It, 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 the movie tries to to wrap it back up into the the religious undertones. I think that there's a final Bible passage at the end of the movie about uh, a new heaven and a new earth and in some of that. And, you know, you could try to draw, we're going to cover a little bit as we get to the parking lot movie discussion, but you know, is this some kind of like, gotcha, you know, maybe you should have listened to Michael moment. And now it's karma for the, for the baby. Is it a, a moment of, well, no, this is, I saw a one critique online that said, well, now that's the last tie that Roseanne has to the old world because it was a child conceived of someone before this happened, and now she's just completely... So now it's Adam and Eve with no ties to the old world, so you can throw that kind of element into it. it it's it's definitely just a lot, because then the movie pretty much just ends, like like how those old films do, um, or quick wrap-up, uh, you know, a screen on the end, and, and then we're done. It is definitely a lot to chew on, and some of it's radioactive and other of it's not. Let's start with the the nuclear stuff to kind of mosey over uh getting super critical i think this movie is so interesting again and why we're covering it is because it's the first that that describes these kinds of post-apocalyptic post-nuclear war stories and i think it's really it takes a, a, a fascinating chance that it doesn't really try to get into it it doesn't really try to say why it happened it just happened everything's pretty much like people are destroyed buildings aren't but i think it's probably more of a budget thing than a deliberate choice no one is like debating about how this happened no one's saying the the european isn't saying it's your you know aggressive american policy that forced europe to get involved in this or it's not charles being upset at let's say barnstaple for you know you had influence in the banking community why couldn't you have pulled back you know the leadership from the brink there's none of that at all it's just everybody's dealing with this um kind of on their own same level there's no discussion of geopolitics government policy. It's just straight up. All right, now you're in the
1: situation. What do you do? And I, I, just find that really interesting. Yeah, I think it is. You know, going back to what we were saying earlier, I think it's very play like. It's like here is the setup. You know, there's not, there's not an expanded universe to this. There right. is, there is what, there is what you see on screen. You can infer things. You can draw symbolism or meaning or whatever you want from what, what you see. But we're not gonna lay everything out for you in a 22 hour. Franchise yeah. movie situation, like the movie. Can, the movie you, moves
0: pretty fast. Um, you could you could even right. say it's a fast
1: five. Yeah, it's a fast five. Yeah, but it's just very different from how things are today. It's like you could definitely see this as a. You could see this remade as a Netflix three season. Yep. three season prestige sort of show. I would not argue it's the. It's not definitely not the best of the
0: of this genre. Like some of the most famous ones um, are movies like Threads, which is. It delves right into the, what happened before, 13 years later, uh, overall, of kind of the decline of, you know, humanity lives in it. I think it's the best version of that story. Um, you have The Day After, the, the kind of 80s TV movie in the United States that scared the bejesus out of anybody from, uh, you know, your everybody who watched it and uh, Ronald Reagan. That movie really gets into this and kind of lives in the the post-apocalypse uh, world. There's all kinds of things, like On the Beach, which is another one of those uh, black and white 1950s, 1960 films where it's about people waiting for the radioactive cloud to get to them. So instead of right. everybody dealing with this and then it's done, there are people in Australia waiting for their turn for the apocalypse, the kind of the pre-before-that-happens kind of situation. So it's definitely, and, and, and that movie's outstanding. So it's not the the, the only one of these but I give it credit for the first. I think it's a, a fascinating choice to place that into it, and and maybe it is one of those necessity is the mother of invention. When you only got seventy five thousand dollars to work with in your backyard and like your you know your guest house uh, to film
1: it in, this is what you get, and that's not too bad. No, not at all. And yeah, I think the those uh, caveats you're putting in there are certainly valid. It's it's impressive what they were able to do with that, and I think as you know, given what they were the kind of structures they were operating under, and also you know. Let's be honest, this is 1950s Hollywood, so the eyes are on film creators in that period where Capitol Hill is looking at at Hollywood pretty aggressively Mm -hmm. in 1951. Maybe you don't talk about geopolitics or government or policy because it's the same thing to do. What do you mean we shouldn't
0: have a, a nuclear weapon all by ourselves? What are you talking right. about? So it, I think that is that is really, really, really interesting. Now that we've done with some nice things about the movie, I have a few, oh my god, Tim, why would you ever bring this up, kind of nitpicks here. I think it's really interesting that the only five people that we see in the movie, the scenarios that we do see with them, the bank vault, the x-ray, uh, the mountaintop, the elevator, none of these, except for maybe the x-ray room, could potentially be kind of the bank vault. Like, but... It's it's just confusing to like what 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 why are they the only people that survive this? Are there no more bank vaults? Are there no more X-ray rooms around the world? Where there are not more people in elevators, where there are not more people on mountains? And why are we only see these individuals and maybe they are around, or they died later, or something, but it is it's fascinating. It almost kind of makes the movie seem like maybe it's a bit supernatural. It's a bit like maybe The Stand, uh, or one of those other films that ties in not only some sort of uh, apocalyptic story, but also throws in religious undertones of these are selected people for a reason kind kind of situation. But I just continue to find that really, really interesting. Uh, because the movie dives in and out of referring to things like, are we, are we talking about fallout? Radioactive dust? Gas? Or are we talking about prompt radiation? The kinds of things that would cause someone, if they were driving in a car or sitting in a waiting room or um, being somewhere, and then radiation's Hits them and they die. That kind of quick burst radiation, which is something you worry about in older situations with nuclear weapons, but really nowadays, the if you're close enough to be affected by prompt radiation, that kind of stuff, immediately gamma and neutron radiation that comes out, you're probably also going to be about to be vaporized by a fireball. So that the range doesn't extend further than the shockwave or the fireball. It is seems to be mostly about like radioactive dust. And again, at this point in time. In 1951, radiation science and fallout just wasn't a fully understood subject. So you could conceive of a world where maybe there's a limited nuclear war or something, and then, yeah, everyone's dead. There's going to be a cloud. It's going to go around everything. Everyone's going to pretty much die within, like, five minutes. You're literally going to die to the point where you're going to have your hat on in your car in the middle of the road, and you die. And it's that sense of, like, this is not just radioactive fallout. This is like mustard gas or something more akin to them understanding poison air, uh, and it took a while longer for people to really understand that there's like a whole range of acute radiation sickness. There can people that can die within minutes. There's people that will last days and months and suffer, and really just depends so much on factors that could vary anything from the exposure time to the size of the person, how much water they had to drink that day. Lots of things that you don't really understand, fully were not understand at that point. But the movie does seem to kind of jump around on that because it doesn't, it's just interesting to me, like the people, where they are, where we find the skeletons. It almost seemed like another movie of mine, uh, favorites that's not really great, but I talk about a lot called Night of the Comet, where a comet travels across the United States, or the world. Something happens with radiation that comes off of that. And if you happen to be not in a room filled with lead, you just turn to dust or a zombie. Like no matter where you are, you're standing, you're dead. This kind of implies that a little bit, based on how we're seeing the people in the room. I don't know if you got that impression, but I, I just one of those things I kept watching and I'm like, what 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 is this scenario
1: that we're seeing here? And again, probably just budget yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think I think maybe budget stuff, but also I would say that you're trying to create a film for an audience that doesn't have a like you're saying science wasn't even understanding at this point so now what is your average viewing audience it's not fair for me to to bring this into it but no I, i think that i think what the film is doing is you know you have to create like okay so there's like the interpersonal threats the interpersonal drama the threat posed by by eric and all these things that are happening which is like you know the meat the soap opera of the story not and i don't mean that pejoratively i mean that you know that's that's the that's the stuff that you're you're kind of green clenching your teeth like oh, what's going to happen next that's the the, the the beauty of the script but then yeah, if someone can find
0: this... me a soap opera plot of an actual like you know digs of our lives but there is a nuclear
1: weapon <laughs> plot in there i will do that for an episode just want to put that out there sorry continue no I, and I i just mean that you have to i think in every disaster movie um or apocalypse movie there has to be that outside threat the thing you can't control and it's it's almost part of the setting right it's like mm-hmm. um when you go outside, this happens, you know, and this is why you can't do X, or this is why we have drama over over Z. Um, So I think they need something, they needed something kind of neat, kind of tidy, that they could show, and they they show it with the death of Barnstable, um, and they show it through kind of characters recollecting, Michael recollecting his travels across the United States and seeing people dying. Like, there needs to be this thing that they're all afraid of. I, I think that they do it as best they could in this movie, by just saying well this is radiation sickness and yeah that's it and it's and it's because of the dust Um, and
0: that's fascinating they talk about people choking and dying which is not really like like radiation um like radioactive fallout like it's bad and you can breathe it in and there are radioactive elements that get into your lungs and things like that that are really bad and maybe wouldn't be that bad uh like say alpha particle radiation is if you know you're blocked by your skin but if it gets in your lungs not great but it's it's um, definitely a, a sense of the time, and you see this fully on the beach, that radiation is something you breathe, and it kills you. Versus really what it is, for most people, it's a piece of uh, particle, uh, you won't never be able to see it. Maybe you'll see it if it's attached to dirt, debris, or buildings. Um, if you happen to be within a certain distance of it, and there's not enough time or something between you, it will continue to hit you. And it just depends on how long this invisible ray gets you. And that's really the thing that people worry about the most. And it's not like, well, if you walked around with a gas mask on, you'd be fine. Nope. Right. It wouldn't be great. But it would be ruining one of the dangers, at least. But not all right. of them. And
1: I, and I think the, the gas mask, what you're saying earlier about like mustard gas and things like that. You know, 1951, you have to imagine a lot of people seeing this film may have fought in the First World War. Right. I mean, they would have They would have been, what, if you were 18 and 1916 you would have been in your 50s or 60s i mean you 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 would have been able to go to movies you know you're not like it's been very much alive and very much like going to cinemas and seeing movies and stuff so maybe uh and you know their kids would have maybe heard about that or read about that so it's like I think they're trying to frame it in a in a way that people could understand. Obviously, people coming home from World War II as well and experiencing some of that. So yeah. also part of why they did it that way. But
0: at least you know, while we didn't understand radiation uh sickness and, and, and radioactive fallout, we did understand distances and time and how things long to you know take to get around. And this is where it's not important really because I didn't really think about it until after I saw the movie, but. Like, how Michael gets to that house before Roseanne does is completely absurd. Was she locked in that x-ray room for a very, very long period of time? How did she get to this thing, which is arguably, like, near where she was, I think? And it took yeah. her that time to get there, and it didn't seem like she was, like, eating anything or whatever. But, like, Michael was able to get from New York City to arguably maybe the United, the, the West Coast Generous read, it's somewhere on the East Coast, and you can maybe argue that he f- that Eric flew from Europe instead of from Hawaii, or I don't know, but like how did it? How did it take that long? Why is Eric not there sooner? Why isn't Charles and other people there sooner? Why isn't Eric there so- I don't know, way later and not just kind of right after? It's, it's just a fascinating speed thing. And I feel like I shouldn't be complaining. I love um, the later seasons of Game of Thrones and people complain all the times about how fast certain characters move around distances and how other things take forever to get to. This was just a very jarring thing. Once you kind of notice it, you're like, oh, that makes no sense.
1: Yeah, it's... I mean, like I said earlier, Eric is the worst defender here, or his, his plot, or his, sorry, his journey is the worst worst offense <laughs> in this category, I think, you know, um, traveling most of the world to get to this unidentified location in the desert. But yeah, Michaels isn't great either. And I don't think we know where Charles and Barnstable are from, right? They just, I assume they're, yeah, but who knows, maybe they're not, maybe they're from Alaska or something because apparently that doesn't matter in this movie. And, and Mark Stable thinks he's on vacation, so it could be from somewhere far away. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I'm, I was thinking about why they made that decision. Like, why couldn't everyone just be from LA or from this town? You know, I guess they, they're not supposed to know each other, so they're not supposed to have any, I think they wanted to make them maybe as different as possible um, within the confines of it being like, Four, four white people and why, an African-American guy. But why, like, couldn't, but like, why couldn't Michael be at the top
0: of a tall building in Los Angeles? Why couldn't Charles and uh, Barnstable be from a bank in Santa Monica? And why couldn't Eric have been uh, climbing, you know, Mount Baldy or one of these other kind of larger mountains in on the west coast of the United States? It's it's an interesting choice.
1: Because then all they would have talked about was, like, the traffic on the 405 or something. <laughs> yeah. You know what I miss? I miss I miss avocados.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's as someone from Southern California, I I get that. Um, so it, it's 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 just a nitpick. It doesn't really matter, but it is one of those kind of the choices were made here, and and maybe it is. I mean, that's kind of why I sometimes drift into this movie might be. A little magic. It might be a little bit of this uh, religious, spiritual intervention stuff that we're not really kind of getting. Like, they talk a lot about, you know, Eric, the terrible person that he is, mentions maybe these people are immune to radiation. Now, he's not because he gets radioactive sickness. Michael seems to be fine. Why? Is it because he just got lucky? Yeah, conceivably that could happen. Uh, Maybe he is sick and it's just going to take like five years before he starts to show some sort of um, cancer. But maybe it's he's perfectly fine. Uh, Ro- Ro- Roseanne seems to be fine, although her baby didn't make it. Charles seemed to be okay, even though everybody was roughly exposed to the same stuff. Again, we didn't really understand it at the time, but it there is seems to be something interesting and, and magical uh, about them. There is radiation immunity is 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 not a thing. There are people that have certain types of thyroid issues that may make them less likely to have. Uh, radioactive iodine stuck in their thyroid. Like if you've had your thyroid removed or it's blocked by other kinds of stuff, you may be less immune to, more immune to that type. But unfortunately there's several types of ways that radiation can get you, not just that. So like there isn't a pill you could take. The pills that people often refer to are iodine tablets that block uh, iodine from getting into your thyroid. That's really it. There's not something that's, that's not really a thing. But maybe there is something magical about this. And like these people are chosen. If they make the right choices, God will help them and help them build a new earth in the image that Michael is trying to build. I don't know. I'm throwing things out there. But that seems sometimes to be maybe potentially where this movie was trying to get to. I might be reading into it too much.
1: No, I, 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 I think that's an interesting take in, in that like maybe these are – maybe maybe not all of them, but maybe these two people at the end are chosen, right? That's right. Like Maybe that's the – the point they're trying to make it's you know with the scripture in the beginning at the end this is this is adam and eve this is how we this is how we get to adam and Eve, right i mean that's that's the genesis is literally quoted in the in the the film at the end of it you have a man and a woman in i wouldn't call it a paradise but i would call it blank slate yeah. <laughs> um, um, i mean you have the serpent too right you have you have eric who is the serpent i guess who's calling them back to the forbidden fruit which is the city which is, uh,
0: he's offering, he's literally offering Roseanne, a, you know, a can canned apples.
1: Yeah. Canned apples. Right. That's the forbidden fruit. Right. You know, not to get to eighth grade book report with it, but I think that that might be, that might be yeah. what they're, they're trying to do there. Um, yeah, I, I think there is something to that actually. I mean, it, 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 that's definitely what they're doing. I mean, the Genesis quote, they put a Genesis quote in the movie, so it's not like they're right. It's they're not, tra- we're not making this up. Yeah. The, the subtext is text in this situation, but, the ending is Revelation verse twenty-one. I don't know if we talked, we mentioned, if we brought that up. No. Do you, Do you have that quote there? They They kind of pick and choose with this one, so they don't give. They don't just change a word, but basically, um, I think at the end they say something like, "There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away." That's the That's the actual verse from Revelation twenty-one. But I I think there's there's something like that. No more crying. No more death. Uh, at the end of the At the end of the movie, so they yeah. they wrap it up with a, a Bible quote as well. Well, to
0: transition over from our, our nuclear stuff to our, our non-nuclear discussion, what I call the parking lot movie discussion, where we're, we're done with the movie, we're hanging out in the parking lot before we go our, our separate ways, um, I think it's, you know, this is interesting. Would you consider this movie, at the end of it, not everyone's dead? Is that a hopeful movie? Is that a hopeful ending, would you say? Um... Like, do you think our main characters are long for this world? Are they going to start a family? Are there other kids going to have to, like,
1: repopulate the Earth, you know, Genesis style? Uh, no, I, I would give them like a year. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's difficult to survive off the land in the wilderness. And they're not, you, we know they're not going back to the cities. Both of them are not going back to the city. So they're not, they're not going to go back and get supplies. They're not going to, they are, they're living off the land um, in a desert. Do you think they're going to um, try to start another family? I think they will. I think that. I mean, this run, this, you run into this problem with, like, repopulating the Earth from two people. Like,
0: and, and when some of them have genetic damage from caused by radiation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, we're probably not looking at a very robust gene pool, I would say, if we make it to a, a second generation, is my guess. So if you didn't
0: think about it, maybe it's optimistic. But if you give it five minutes, three minutes with the thought, eesh, what an ending to it.
1: Yeah. Maybe there are other people. That's that's sort of the, I guess, right. the hope that you have to have, right? Maybe other people exist in this world that they will encounter and be able to form a society with. So
0: I, you know, it could be someone else, uh, two people that survive, And so, you know, now, honey, uh, we'll go on that trip that you always wanted to, which was we're going to visit every house built by Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, we're going to visit all these places. We're going to go on a tour. And then these people will get connected together.
1: That's right. Yeah. They're all living in the Frank Lloyd Wright houses and they form a swingers community for the to, good of humanity.
0: <laughs> th- so this is this movie is is fascinating because not only does it portray the first time this kind of post nuclear war apocalypse situations but it's not the only one it's not even the first one to have a, the, an apocalyptic genre there are others before that or or, or around that time period and you put together a, a really kind of interesting list that we might be able to do a little compare and contrasting here and most of these aren't necessarily nuclear but um you have what else what do you want to what, introduce us uh, set the stage here
1: yeah i was i was really interested in kind of looking at the early days of film and trying to understand what, like, what were the films and what were the threats filmmakers were portraying in early apocalyptic cinema. Now, of course, like this idea, the end of the world is a theme that's been in human literature and not even pre-literature, just like human storytelling from the beginning of of time. I think like. Revelations, I mean, is about the end of the world. I mean, even yeah, I'm sure like, you know, in BC times there were, there's probably, you know, stuff about the end of the world. Again, tweet at us uh, if you are an ancient historian. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I was like more interested, like you know, once we have film, once we have motion pictures, were people talking about this? And there were four films that popped up as features before before this one. So the first was the End of the World, nineteen sixteen. It's a Danish film, and the apocalyptic thing is a comet. Nineteen thirty-one, a French film called The End of Sorry. So the first one, the Danish film, was called The End of the World. The French film from 1931 is called End of the World. No, uh, no article there. Again, a comet. Hmm. And I think this is because in the late 19th century, Halley's Comet came very close to Earth. And my understanding is that this was a big deal at the time and informed a lot of these ideas about a comet, perhaps later in Cinema and Asteroid, but at the time a comet. Yeah. Uh, hit, hit hitting the earth, so and we didn't even have nuclear weapons to throw at
0: the comets yet, like all the other right. films
1: that exist that's right. we have nothing we could do right we just <laughs> we, we have to we have to shoot it with you know just munitions that we have or, or artillery um, but, <laughs> but uh so comets were comets were the big bad then in nineteen thirty three there's an American film called deluge and it's just like a series of natural disasters that are not explained begin to to happen and destroy the earth. Uh, 1936 a a british film based on an h.g wells book called the shape of things to come h.g wells wrote h.g wells wrote the screenplay um, for the movie called the things to come that is our first introduction to the idea of world war as the spark of the apocalypse that you know movie comes out in 1936 literally during a world war and then we see things kind of cool cinema wise until 1951 when we get this movie so there were some post-apocalyptic movies that happened or that were released prior to 1951 for the five but this is indeed as we were saying at the top this is the first one to deal with the the nuclear themes that we were you know that we do we, we chat about on this podcast so
0: well as, essentially you mentioned the hd wells um screenplay because he also wrote a book kind of a short novel in 1913 called the world set free which is one of the first stories ever about Nuclear weapons and the science that was just now emerging of, oh, if we know how to, you know, uh, create fission and um, separate uranium or some sort of atom uh, that generates energy, yeah, that could be used for power generating purposes or weapons. Here's a story about that. And it is a really, really cool sh- story that starts to look into that. And I can see H. G. Wells immediately going from that, being like, "Yeah, so here's a war story, also, uh, with with all of this stuff." So, and that, those titles seem, you know, very similar. They must kind of be in the same, you know, logic thread that he has there. The world set free, leading to uh, what did you call it? The the the,
1: the shape sh- of things, things to, to come. come. Shape things to come. Yeah. Did the characters learn anything in this movie?
0: Yeah. I I think that I mean, like Eric. Eric learned that. He is not immune. So gotcha. Okay. Right. Fair enough. The immunity um, is not or immunity is not real, or at least he is not immune. Right. Uh, it's it's almost seemed to me like it was a like a, a weird like Rick and Morty joke, like I'm not immune, oh no. I thought it was different different. Uh, but anyways, like I think the characters at the end I mean I don't I don't I wouldn't argue that they learned anything, but I don't know what they were supposed to to learn Don't go I mean, to the city. What's that? <laughs> don't go into the, the city. city. I mean I think Roseanne learned what happened to her husband, like the forbidden fruit that Eric offered her. This knowledge came with a cost. Like now she knows about her husband, but her child died. Right. Now she's ready to move on. But God, man, what a, what a message that is. I'm still trying to process fully like what that means. Like, is it like, good. Now you've learned your lesson, paid the cost. Now grow corn and old and make babies with this person named Michael. Uh, what did Michael learn? I mean, like, Michael seemed to be, except for that terrible thing he did at the beginning, he was kind of on it. He knew that Eric was bad. He knew what they needed to do to survive. He knew not to go into the cities. People just listened to Michael. Would they be all better? Now Michael gets to be the only person with a um, a spouse. Like, is Michael the good guy? Did he win at the end? He loses his friend Charles. Like, I, I, it's hard to tell other than just As you mentioned, it's very fatalistic, and it's kind of just where our people are. Maybe they'll learn to grow together uh, and find some sense of peace, but it might also be this is what they're doing for a year before the other shoe drops.
1: Yeah, I kind of like this movie a lot. (laughs) (laughs) If that's a segue.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's wrap this up then, because if you like this movie, let's put a number to it, because uh, we usually rate um, our movies in a system. Let's rate the movie out of five. With one being the worst and five being terrific. I tailor this based on the content that we watched. So at the risk of being confusing, I hope my logic makes sense here. Uh, let's rate five on a scale of one out of five Halloween store skeletons. One set of Halloween store skeletons is nice to have if you're like doing home renovation and you want to prank the future homeowners. Throw that in the, the, the crawl space and, you know, freak people out several years from now. But if you've got five of those, you could store those skeletons wherever you want. And you could even do like a, a spooky couch run like on The Simpsons. So five is better than one if you're trying to set the mood for Halloween. I give this movie a three. And I a very solid three. I think it's it's a really interesting movie for its place in history. I think it, not everyone might be into it if they're not already kind of invested in the nuclear stuff. That's kind of my, my thought on it. Um, but after watching it twice for the podcast, I did like it better the second time. So maybe if I, I gave it a little bit more of a thought, this could inch a little closer to a three and a half. But um, I think it's worth it, though. It's one of my threes that I would say it's a three, but I would recommend you watch it.
1: Yeah, I I, I would give it a three and a half. And I I, and I that's I think that's a good rating. Um, this movie was like way more provocative than I initially thought it would be. I thought it was going to be very like Toast 1951 kind of propaganda, a propaganda film. And it definitely isn't like it's it's a real... Uh it's a real head scratcher in a lot of ways. A lot of the choices that were made, a lot of the characters that they show, as we said at, at the top with certain scenes like really tough, really mm-hmm. questionable why they included those scenes. But uh particularly with like the sexual assault stuff, let's just come out and say it. But it's not uh I think even with that in there, it's it's worth a watch. Um, and I'm really glad I went in cold. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not going in cold. <laughs> you're you're going in extremely hot. But uh I, I, I think it's it's worth watching just to, to, to see kind of a unique low budget take on an end of the world movie, which are usually yeah. in our current time, like blockbusters, very pompous, blown up summer, you know, summer movies. And this is not that so complicated movie. You're going to see things you're not going to see in movies these days. And I will probably watch this, honestly, just wow. to dive in a little more.
0: Well, if people want to, uh, not necessarily rewatch the movie, but watch something that is in the same uh light parallel adjacent to this. Uh, we have got some recommendations I've got uh, a handful here um one it's kind of self serving but I would say watch on the beach, read the book on the beach uh cover we covered it on one of our podcasts where I had a guest on uh Joe Serrinzioni, formerly of the uh, Carnegie Endowment and the Plashers, uh fund. Uh, he and I had a great conversation about that movie, because it has a similar tone, exploration of what life is like at these kind of moments, but it's people waiting for the end of the world to hit them, uh, versus it's already happened and them trying to rebuild. But I think it's worth um, having maybe even a double feature. Both movies have very prominent scenes of beach, uh, things on the beach, uh, and also really kind of a, 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 an interesting tale of end of times kind of story. With the movie that is very tight in terms of the number of characters and low budget but really powerful stuff, I really strongly always recommend 12 Angry Men. I think that movie about uh, a juror team trying to decide uh, the fate of someone. And really, that movie is so good about how characters are introduced and you watch them change and you watch the resilience and argumentation and um racism and sexism and all kinds of variety of stuff uh you could see this movie um having parallels to the kind of conversations that happen in in five i've got some other stuff but you I mean, people have talked heard me talk about it before like night of the comment and and other stuff like that
1: james hopefully you can uh... uh my first suggestion is a movie that came out early this year called how to blow up a pipeline um it's currently available on vod um, on Amazon, Google, wherever you rent your fine films for viewing at home. Really cool movie about uh, a group of young people who are trying to, as the title states, blow up um, an oil pipeline in Texas um, as an act of you know, civil resistance against climate change. I think it's appropriate because it's about a bunch of people arguing in the desert. And uh, that's, that's my connection there. But really cool film uh, uh, directed by um, Daniel Goldharber and worth, worth checking out, uh, pretty short film, some great actors in it, um, including uh, Forrest Goodluck who was in The Revenant. Coming back to my desert movie recommendations, I think one of the best desert movies of all time is Mad Max Fury Road. Um, it has nothing to do with this movie except that again there are people um, Arguing in the desert. I know that's
0: there's there's nu- there there are nuclear war stuff that happened in that movie. That's that's
1: true. That's very very true. That's uh, have you done that on this podcast?
0: Uh, we haven't yet because it's it's not. I wouldn't say it's as juicy as maybe some people talk about it as a nuclear war movie. It definitely there are shots though of stock footage of nuclear bombs and things and that and is radioactive wasteland. Yes. But um, uh, there are other movies that we've covered on the podcast that I think that you would actually love things like Six String Samurai. That I have to send your direction, but you—you were okay. making recommendations.
1: No, yeah, I was just saying. Uh, again, there, it's obviously known as being like one of the greatest action films of all time, but I actually think like the dialogue, um, you know, not the the high tension dialogue stuff, but like just when the, the few quiet moments in that movie, I actually kind of reminded me of this a bit. Just like how how people are talking to one another and and mm-hmm. and, and and how how tense things can be just with a couple words. So. And obviously, I just love that movie, so I'm just going to promote it. There was a scene um, in that
0: movie that I thought of recently because uh, you 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 run your D and D game that we are part of, and um, there definitely was a, a moment in this this week where you set up something for us, and it was like for us to go to and fly to, and it was clearly a trap bait even. Uh, and I remember that scene where um, Max is like, you know, driving the car, and he's like, nope, nope, that's bait. And I was like, I know it's bait, but man, it's good bait. I got to go. It's a, it's a fish. I see the hook, but whew, that is a yeah. pretty looking lure. That's the best kind of bait, right? Yeah. of people take. That's what happens when you have a, <laughs> a, a castle floating above a cratered city with tentacles flying out of it. I'm going to have to see what it is.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad it was enticing. Um, my last recommendation is, this is just like actually because I thought when I was watching the the scene on the beach in this movie, um, it reminded me of that scene on the beach in their Will Be Blood*, where um, Daniel Plainview is talking with his sort of mm-hmm. fake brother, I guess. Um, and it's at night. It's shot very differently. It looks for, for some reason just like a sad scene on yeah. the Pacific Ocean, like when they're kind of sitting on a beach. Just reminded me of that. And how, I've, you got know, a,
0: I've got a competition in me. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I like. I don't think I like
1: people. Um, yeah, it's just like yeah. it's one of those scenes where it's this beautiful location. Um, it should be a nice moment, but it kind of turns so south. And uh, those scenes remind me of one another, perhaps in a convoluted way, but it's what like came it. to mind. So I like um, it. there will be blood. It's It's been out for a long time now, and it's extremely critically acclaimed. I don't think you're, the listeners need to have that recommended to them, but go watch it again. It's great.
0: One other recommendation that I just thought of right now that I, I should have put together on there is... Uh, a really funny show, I forget what it was on, like maybe Fox or FX or something, uh, but it's called The Last Man on Earth, starring um, Will Forte. It's a funny show. It starts with the premise that this person, after a, a plague, um, kills most people, he seems to be immune, and he's just by himself. And it's kind of funny, driving around the country uh, with the B- B-2 bomber. Um, but it very at the end of the first episode, you get introduced to more people. And you maybe meet like a handful of individuals. But it's kind of like the premise of this, where people are trying to rebuild civilization. No one's an outright racist that I remember uh, in the show. Uh, But it is a really nice and hilarious take on, all right, so now we got all these people here. What do we do? Are we going to build a town? We're going to build a city? We're going to build a civilization? And at some point in the show, they have to deal with, oh, wait, no one was watching all of those nuclear power plants. They're melting down now. We have to try to go find somewhere. I love that little wrinkle. So I've always tried to think about a way to cover that. But if you haven't um, seen it, it's very much ties into this.
1: Oh, I'll, I, I watched it early on a couple episodes, but I'll, I'll revisit it for your for your recommendation. I think I'm going to we'll have to ask my wife to,
0: to rewatch it as well. Uh, James, thanks again. Uh, excellent second showing as co-host. I uh, appreciate you coming on. Where can people find you and your, and your, uh, your interest?
1: You can find me on twitter.com. Uh, at sheehan DC, that's J S H E E H A N DC. That's really the only place I want people to find me, Tim. But
0: thank yeah. you. <laughs> that's fair enough. Uh, I won't. I won't give people the address to your uh, your bunker out in the in the mountains. Uh, that's just for you, and or whoever gets
1: right. to it first. You know, mate. I mean, I mean, I'm going to Everest personally, but uh, <laughs> you know.
0: That's right. You did recently get your pilot's license too. Hmm. We'll figure out what that means later. Thanks again, James. Appreciate it. Thank you Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either nuke-wise or, you know what, maybe Roseanne was just a slow walker and Michael just knew all the shortcuts and you've done this walk before. It's not that bad. Uh, a couple ways you can tell us that. Uh, you can go on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast and reach out to me. Um, ever since Twitter killed the ability for me to use my uh, third party app that I used to use on Twitter, it means that I don't go on Twitter as much on the day to day. But I still um, go on the computer and try to talk to people. But it may not be as quick. But I do use that to, to connect with individuals. We also have a website and a, an email. Uh, both of them start with Supercritical Podcast. One ends in a .dot com and one ends in an at gmail.com hopefully that was just confusing enough. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer.
1: This is James Shan.
0: And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Cheers.